0: Father, we come to you as the God who speaks. God, you have spoken this universe into existence. You have spoken into this world through your written word and through your incarnate word, Jesus, you have come among us. And we are people that need your voice. We need your word spoken over our lives. So come by your spirit. And as your word is opened, God, would you open up our hearts and lives and make us attentive to your voice. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Amen. So if you are joining us for the first time today, we have been in a series together entitled Every Square Inch. And we've been talking together about what it looks like to follow Jesus into every nook and cranny of our lives. And today is actually the last week in our series. And so we are coming to the conclusion of our series in the book of Colossians and into our Every Square Inch series. You can sigh a groan. It's really sad, isn't it? But uh, today, as we close out our series, you know we've been talking about what it looks like to follow Jesus in our married life, at, at home, and in the neighborhood, and in our vocations. And what we're going to talk today about is what does it look like to follow Jesus in our friendships. And so I want to talk to you today about friendship. Now, I think a lot of us are kind of schizophrenic when it comes to the topic of friendship. Because on the one hand, we value and we prize friendship. I mean, so many of our great stories are about friendship. I mean, why was it that Luke failed to complete his training with Yoda, the Jedi master on the Dagobah system? Didn't he say, I can't keep that vision out of my head? They're my friends. I've got to help them. And how does The Return of the Jedi open? It opens not with Luke and Leia and Lando and Chewbacca going to save the universe. Instead, it opens with them going to save their friend Han from uh, Jabba the Hutt. And a lot of Christians, of course, were uh, real critical of the Harry Potter series because they thought that that book series was about witchcraft. But Harry Potter is not about witchcraft. It's about friendship. And of course, uh, the, the defining fairy story of the 20th century, The Lord of the Rings, at the heart of that entire narrative is a story about the friendship of these four hobbits. A very sub-theme is friendship. And maybe you don't nerd out on those movies like I do, but um, what was the most watched TV series of the 90s? It was Friends. And uh, I don't know how many of you remember that classic from the 80s, Stand By Me. At the end, the narrator says, those friendships I had at 12, I don't think I've experienced anything else like it. Have any of us? And I think we resonate with that because we value and we prize friendship. And so many of our favorite characters, you just can't know one without the other. I mean, where would Thelma be without Louise, or Butch Cassidy without the Sundance Kid, or Dustin without Steve, or Elsa without Olaf, or uh, Piglet without Pooh Bear, or Alice without Hatter, or Spider-Man without Ned? you got to love Ned or Toad without Ratty and Mole, or Captain America without Bucky, or C-3PO without R2, or Jonathan without Brutus. That was just an inside (laughs) thing for Jonathan. But it's not just film and TV. I mean, a lot of our favorite songs are about friendship, aren't they? Uh, Don't you feel nostalgic and weepy when you hear Randy Newman sing, you've got a friend in me. You've got a friend. Come on, let's sing it together. Yes. Uh, you can just see uh, um, Woody and Buzz Lightyear walking around. Or, or lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend. Come on, John. I'll help you carry on. Come on. So, All right, anyway. And you know. Even the Beatles knew that with all of their wealth and fame, even the Beatles couldn't get by without a little help from their friends, right? And who doesn't sway and join Sweet Baby James as he sings winter, spring, summer, or fall? All you got to do is call. Come on. And I'll be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got a friend. Don't you know? And perhaps the most nostalgic of all, Dion Warwick. Through good times and bad times, I'll be on your side. Come on. Come on. That's what friends are for. And why is it that we find these songs and these movies and these stories so compelling? And why do they resonate with us so much? It's because all of us, we value, we prize. We know the importance and significance of friendship. Or as God declared, we know that it is not good for the human to be alone. Or as Brene Brown says, connection is why we are here. It's what gives us purpose and meaning in our lives. And so we deeply value it. But on the other hand, I think a lot of us find it difficult to nurture and sustain deep and meaningful connection and friendships. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Of course, we live in a digital age of social media. And for all of the connectivity that we are afforded through uh, Facebook and Instagram and TikTok or whatever, oftentimes it leaves us feeling like we haven't actually connected with another human being. And of course, many of us have been hurt. And so we're afraid of getting hurt again. And some of us are insecure. We don't know if they want to be our friends, so we're afraid to reach out to them. And so we, we, we long to develop and cultivate and nurture rich and abiding friendships, and yet we find ourselves withdrawing from it or failing to live into it because of our own insecurities or our fears or, 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 or our technology or whatever. And, and so we need help when it comes to this issue of friendship. And look, if you are going to mature as a follower of Jesus, you will never do it alone. I mean, one of the core needs of a, of a Jesus follower is deep friendships that help you walk with Jesus. You know, I think in, in our churches, in the evangelical world, we, we have prized, we valued the family and marriage, and we focused on the family. But in many cases, we've neglected the art, the, the rich art of spiritual friendship, of actually nurturing and sustaining important and valuable friendships. And so we want to talk together about what it looks like to cultivate and develop friendship today. And we're going to learn from one of the great friends in the history of the church, the Apostle Paul. You know, We oftentimes think about Paul as a church planner, uh, an entrepreneurial leader, a visionary, a theologian. But Paul was also an incredible friend. You know, when you study through his letters, one of the things that, that is just of, of note is how many people he knows by name, and he seems to have this deep, intimate connection with them. I just counted through last night, again, uh, a few of his letters. I counted 50 names of people who he, 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 they were his close companions and friends. And so he has something to teach us about friendship. And so I want to kind of dive into this little closing section in this letter that Paul writes to the church in Colossae. And as he closes out this letter, and he talks about friends he's sending, and friends who are staying with them, and a friend who's praying for the church, and uh, friends who he's connecting with at the church, I want to just kind of look underneath the surface. I want us to explore four principles, or four qualities, or four marks of a good friend, of spiritual friendship. And number one, what we see from this text is that friends stand by our side. Friends are by our side. Look what it says back in the text in verse 7. He says, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. It's interesting, in this text, Paul uses these tender and intimate terms to describe his friends. He, he, He speaks of them as beloved. He talks about beloved Tychicus, beloved Onesimus. He calls Luke the beloved physician. And you get this, this picture of intimacy and closeness and deep connection. And yet, at the same time, he also refers to them as his fellow workers. In fact, uh, one of the favorite ways that Paul describes uh, his companions, his friends, is with this term fellow. And in, in Greek, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a simple prefix, uh, which is "soon," which can be translated as with, and he, he, he describes his fellows as those who are with him as uh, slaves and as prisoners and as workers and as soldiers. And so Tychicus is his fellow servant, and Aristarchus is his fellow prisoner. Uh, Mark and Justice are called fellow workers, and Archippus is called uh, a fellow soldier. Because... Uh, it, it was in the midst of battle that he drew close. It was in the midst of work that their friendship was forged. It was in the midst of, of, of shared suffering that they grew near together. And haven't you found that to be the case in your own life? It is in battle that you draw near with somebody. It is in, uh, it is in work that is shared together. It is in um, fellow service of the Lord. It's in in shared suffering that you actually develop deep and meaningful and abiding friendships. C.S. Lewis uh, famously pointed out in his um, wonderful little book, The Four Loves, he's got a chapter on friendship. And there he he says this. Um, He he talks about, um, uh, he says this. He said, we picture lovers face to face, but friends side by side, their eyes looking ahead. And then he says this, that is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about the truth. I only want a friend. No friendship can arise. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about, and friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Paul had a vision. He was going somewhere He had a a cause that was worth suffering for, the spread of the gospel of Jesus. And so he forged friendships with people who were fellow travelers in that cause and in that battle and in that mission. And if you want to develop deep and meaningful friendships in your life, you need to participate in a cause bigger than your life. You know, we live in an age right now where you can spend so much of your time simply being entertained to death, watching another YouTube clip, binging another Netflix series, staring at a screen all day long, swiping through one thing after another, going down the rabbit hole of bizarre stories, and yet you can miss out on living for something larger than yourself and your own entertainment. And the beauty of the gospel is that we are invited into the cause of God's kingdom. And it's in this cause, and in in serving this cause in very specific and particular ways, like going down and, and serving children in our children's ministry alongside other children's workers or working with students alongside other youth workers, or going down to the rescue mission and serving the homeless alongside other workers that are doing that, or or being a participant with Grief Share and Susan Hill, and and, and joining in friends who who are suffering together. It's in those causes that you actually develop deep and meaningful friendships. And so if you want friends, one of the first places you can start is by getting up and serving together with other people. And so, number one, friends stand by our side, looking ahead together. You know, one of the most important and long term friendships I've had is is with uh, Robert Cavolo. And I I can remember our friendship was forged when we discovered that we had a shared passion for surfing and theology and the Bible. And it was in that shared passion that we had together that we were just drawn, and our hearts were knit together as we studied uh, the Bible together, as we served together, as we had deep and meaningful conversations about uh, theology together. And as we served together in the ministry, our hearts were knit together. And this is where friendships are forged, and they're cultivated, and they're developed. So number one, friends stand by our side. But secondly, I think what we learn from Paul is not only do friends stand by our side, but friends let us in. Friends let us in. Look back at the text. Look at what it says. Uh, verse 7 again. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. I have sent him to you. So Paul is closing this letter He's talking about two guys who he's sending their way to Colossae, Tychicus and Onesimus. And why is Paul sending them? Well, one is they're carrying the letter to the church. But secondly, they want to let the church know how Paul is doing. So he says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you might know how we are. Now, why would they care about how Paul is doing? Well, because one of their pastors is in jail, and he's in chains. And if your pastor was in jail and in chains, I hope you would inquire about how I was doing. (laughs) And so Paul opens up and discloses a little bit of his own suffering and pain. And notice how he even closes this letter. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And then he says this, remember my chains why is he asking them to remember his chains? Well, maybe one reason is he wants them to know that the Christian life involves suffering. And if the great apostle of the gospel suffered, then you will suffer too. But I think he wants them to remember something more. I think he wants them to remember him in their compassion and in their prayers. To remember that he is having a hard go at it. And he's opening up his life, and he's sharing a bit of his own weakness, his own suffering, and his own pain with them. And it is that vulnerability and that trust of openness that develops a deep connection with them. And it always develops a deep connection when you are vulnerable and when you're open, when you disclose something of your own pain and suffering and weakness. You know, in the first century, it was an honor-shame culture, and it would have been a stigma to be in prison and to be chained. And yet Paul discloses this stigma, this thing that would be a shame. He doesn't present his strength. He presents his weakness, and he says, remember my weakness. And this is where intimacy and friendship develops. It's in that space of vulnerability. You know, there's no deep, life-changing friendship without intimacy, and there's no intimacy without vulnerability, and there's no vulnerability without risk, is there? You know, the most, uh, one of the top-viewed uh, TED Talks in, in the history of, of TED Talks is one by uh, a sociologist whose name is Brene Brown, and she gave a talk about vulnerability, Now, why were were so many people interested in vulnerability? I, I think it's because we know we need it, and yet all of us struggle with it because we want to present our strength. We want to present our best self. And yet Brene Brown says this, staying vulnerable is a risk we have to take if we want to experience connection. She goes on, if you trade your authenticity for safety, and do you know what that means? You trade your honest, real self in disclosing that instead for playing it safe and being hidden. She says this, the following, you may experience the following, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, addiction, rage, blame, resentment, and inexplicable guilt." And it's because we haven't disclosed it. We've kept it buried down inside. And yet, Paul is showing us, he's modeling for us like, here is where connection and deep friendships are forged. It's in that space of openness and honesty and intimacy where you let people in. You let them into your struggles and your weaknesses and your failures. And those things you're ashamed of, you open that up and disclose it. You know, oftentimes in church the only time we share about something that we've been ashamed of is in the course is in the context of a victory story. You know what I mean by a victory story? It's that story where you talk about I once was this but now I'm this. Oh yeah, I was there but now I'm here. But there you're 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 disclosing yourself from a place of strength and not of weakness. And yet if you want to experience genuine freedom, and healing and deep and abiding connection, you will never do that unless you are willing to open up and disclose your failures and your sins. You know, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic Life Together who said that he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. Paul was not alone with his sin. He was not alone with his suffering. He was not alone with his chains or his imprisonment because he had invited his friends in. Have you? Are you? Do you? You need this. You know, I I just want to say before I move on, one of the great issues in our churches is that we feel like we always have to present a false self in the context of a church building. Because you think that everyone else has their life together because that's what they're presenting for you. But listen, I have been behind the closed doors with enough nice church people whose lives are an absolute train wreck to know that almost none of us have our life together. My life isn't all together. I've got my anxieties. I've got my issues. I've got my fears. I've got my failures. None of us have it together. And so can't we just be honest? Can't we just be open and say, look, it's okay to not be okay all the time. And here is where intimacy and depth of friendship and actually spiritual growth and change can happen. It's in the context of close and intimate relationships where you're willing to disclose and make yourself known. And every time you do what you discover, I mean, just about every time, occasionally, you'll find some weird, self-righteous, mean-spirited church person who just needs to go away But almost every time what you discover is, really, me too. I know what you're going through. I've been there. I'm there right now. And so friends let you in, and intimacy and closeness and connection is developed. So number one, friends, stand by our side. Secondly, friends, let us in. Let us in. But thirdly, friends, call us out. I want you to see back in the text again. This is, this is kind of interesting. There's, there's a little backstory going on in these closing verses that if you don't know, you're going to miss almost the entirety of what's happening here. So Paul says, I'm sending to you Tychicus and Onesimus. Look what it says. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow slave in the Lord. It's interesting. Tychicus was one of Paul's closest travel companions. He was a great spiritual leader in the church. And Paul, like he willingly and often named himself, he called himself a slave, taking on the identity of a very low-status person. And then ironically, in the very next phrase, he talks about somebody who actually was a slave in the Roman Empire named Onesimus. And with Tychicus is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Here, where the leader is named a slave, the slave in that culture was only named a beloved brother who is one of you. Now, what makes this even more interesting is that Tychicus and Onesimus are carrying a letter to this church in Colossae. Now, do you know who the pastor in the church of Colossae was? Well, the the church met in the home of a couple named Philemon and um, Athea, and almost certainly their son Archippus or Archippus. I think it's Archippus. If you're looking for the name of a child, that's a good one. Because it can go a lot of places. It can be arch. It can be archy. It can be chip. It can be chippy. But (laughs) I don't know. Um, Where was I? Chip, Arch- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Archippus was the pastor of this church that met in probably the home of his parents, who were the hosts, the house leaders, the, the church leaders. And their slave was named Onesimus. They had a large household. And like everyone else in the Roman Empire, if you had a large estate, you had servants or slaves. Their slave Onesimus had run off and almost certainly had stolen some money or embezzled some money, or maybe from another vantage point, took what was rightly his from his master uh, Philemon and ran off to try to get lost in the nearest large city, which was Ephesus. Well, ironically or providentially, while in Ephesus, he ran into the apostle Paul. Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus, tells them this incredibly good news that the creator of all things took on the low status of a slave so that through the death of a slave, he could redeem and save all of humanity and raise the status of everyone who was ever down in that low place. And Onesimus heard this good news and he was radically transformed. And so Paul takes. Tychicus and now converted Onesimus and sends them back to Colossae so that they can read a letter to the house church that meets in the home of Onesimus' former master. So they carry this letter in, and I just imagine they gathered the church together, they start reading this letter, and how does it feel when the Apostle Paul sends Tychicus and Onesimus to read this letter to the church? Awkward. And they start reading through it. And I can just imagine a pin, you could hear a pin drop when Onesimus or maybe Tychicus, whoever's reading the letter reads this, that here in this new creation that's been birthed into the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but all are one new humanity in Jesus Christ. At the end of the letter, Paul comes and almost the very last thing he says is he exhorts Archippus of the household that Onesimus was a part of with these words and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that can be translated see that you fulfilled the special task i've given you to do what is that special task well in the book of philemon which is the letter that accompanies the letter to the church in colossae is the words where paul says to philemon he says look i'm sending onesimus back to you and i want you to receive him no longer as a slave but now as your brother Chains shall he break, for the slave he is, our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. And then Paul says, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. And by the way, Philemon, don't forget, you owe me your very life. And so I want you to receive Onesimus back, even as you would receive me, the honored apostle to the Gentiles." And then he says to our chippus, see that you fulfill that special task. You see what he's doing? Now, Paul was close to these people. They were his friends. But he's calling them out, and he's calling them specifically to the work of orienting their lives in conformity with the new reality that was birthed into the world with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And friends, this is our mission in our friendships is to call each other out and to call each other into lives of fidelity that reflect this new reality of a new world that's been birthed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To look into each other's lives and to see where the way you use your money the way you use your time, the way you treat your parents or your spouse or your roommate, is not in conformity with this new reality that's been birthed into the world. And to call each other out, to call each other into lives of faithfulness. This is what Paul is doing. He is not not holding back. He's being direct. He's clear. He's straightforward. And we need to be the same way with our Friends. This is a mark of genuine friendship. So, for number one, friends, they stand by our side. Number two, friends let us in. Number three, friends call us out. But thirdly and finally, friends welcome us back. Notice back in verse 10 what it says. Um, he, he mentions a, another group of guys. So, Tychicus and Onesimus were the friends who were sent. But now he mentions some friends who stayed with him while he was in prison. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice... These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. He talks about justice, he talks about Aristarchus, and then he talks about Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And he has a special word to the church about Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. He says, if he comes to you, make sure you welcome him. Actually, in the original Greek, it's even stronger than that. It's almost as if he says, a divine command has come to you welcome Mark. Now, why on earth would the church be need, would need to have this command to welcome one of the companions of the apostle Paul? Well, there's a backstory to that question, and it's because Paul had a falling out in previous days with Mark, or who's also known as John Mark. So again, a little bit of the backstory. So the apostle Paul was besties with uh, Barnabas in the first few chapters in the book of Acts, which record his ministry, Barnabas had Paul's back. When nobody else believed in Paul because he was a former persecutor of the church, Barnabas came and, and basically advocated for him. And then they took their first missionaries' journeys together, and they were in deep. They were co-laborers, partners in the mission of God. And then Barnabas invited his cousin, John Mark, to join with him on the missionary journeys. Paul welcomed him in. They were traveling together, and then at some point, Paul felt utterly betrayed and let down by John Mark because John Mark abandoned them probably in one of their greatest hours of need. And then when they launched out on another missionary journey, Barnabas and Paul got in a fight because Barnabas said, let's take John Mark. And Paul said, not on your life. And their disagreement was so strong that they parted ways. There was a deep breach, a rift in this, the best of friends, And it was over John Mark because Paul felt betrayed by John Mark. But that's not where the story ends because when you come here, Paul says, Mark is back. I've welcomed him back. All has been forgiven. And he tells the church, look, maybe you've heard some stories about him. Don't give him the cold shoulder. Welcome him back. Bring him in. Show him the divine, hospitable love of God when he comes among you. No shame, no guilt, no reminding him of what he did. No, welcome him back. And this is what friends do. After they have let you down After after they failed you, maybe they stabbed you in the back, but then they come back, they try to make amends, and you work through the issues and junk, and you welcome them back. And we do this fundamentally because God has welcomed us back. Because none of us are defined by the worst thing we've ever done. You know, um, one of my, my favorite quotes Comes from Brian Stevenson, who is a civil rights uh, law attorney. And he's worked with just a ton of inmates on death row. But he said this he often notes that in his conversations with his clients who are struggling and despairing over their situations and the things that they had done or that were done to them, he says his clients are often value, questioning the value of their, their lives. And he, he, would, he would always remind them of this. He says, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And friends, that's true of you. You are not defined by your failures. You're not defined by the worst thing you've ever done. And listen, the friends who stabbed you in the back or who believed a lot of stupid things and who said some stupid things, or maybe who have radically different opinions about things than you do and you got offended by that and you don't like them anymore and you read about them on uh, you know, uh, the internet because that's what we do these days, <laughs> and, and, and listen, we are not defined by our failures, and your friends aren't defined by their failures and the way they let you down. They are more than that. They're human beings that have been created in the image of God and they're loved by God, and they're worth a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. You know, Jesus, the, Paul, Peter said to, to Jesus, how many times shall, shall my brother get it, sin against me then I shall still forgive him? Seven times, Lord? Surely that's a lot, isn't it? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Welcome them back. And the only way we find the power to continually welcome people back and to have the strength and the courage to let people in is when we encounter the reality that before we have ever sought to move towards others as their friends, the true and living God has come to us be our friend. Jesus said, I mean, Jesus said this, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. The true and living God calls you a friend. And yet he has called you out because he is your friend. He has exposed you and undone you and shown you that you are a sinner in need of grace. But then he welcomed you back. You know, the, the prodigals, we, we've gone off, all of us, in our different ways. We found ourselves in our pigsties. And, and we, we, like the prodigal, have, have you know, thought, if we could just come back, maybe I'll come back to God. And you look up only to find that the Father is running to you with open arms, because he welcomes you back with his gracious love and hospitality and forgiveness. And then he lets you in. You know, Jesus has disclosed to us the very heart of God. Jesus has invited us into the divine community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have been welcomed into the fellowship, the eternal divine fellowship. What does that even mean? We haven't even scratched the surface, have we? And yet this is what you have been welcomed into. And then he he invites you to stand by his side and to walk with him in his exciting, his exhilarating mission in this world to, to, to love the lost and the sick and the dying in his name. You know, you might be here today and you might know nothing of this divine friendship. And I just want you to know, God is not fundamentally opposed to you He is not primarily looking down on you, condemning you. God is moving towards you in love. And he invites you to come to him and to be forgiven and to be welcomed back home and to be made a friend of God if you will just come to him, if you will just open your heart and life to him. If you will just say, God, I need you. Come in and forgive me. Welcome me back home. If you come home, you will find the Father with his arms wide open welcoming you in. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now with gratitude and joy in our hearts because you no longer simply call us servants. You have invited us into the divine community of friendship. God, would you help us discover what that means in our relationship with you? Would you reignite our own gratitude, our joy in this relationship we have with you? And God, would you help us to move out toward others with vulnerability, to take risks, to be courageous? God, would you help us to have the mercy and love to receive people back into our lives and not cancel them out because of some falling out we've had? God, would you help us to move toward each other as friends? And God, would you cultivate in the life of this community, Christ Church, a rich life of friendship and partnership in the gospel of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask these things. And all God's people said, amen.